So let's start this morning with 1 John chapter 4. Um, we're going to be covering verses 1 through 12 this morning. And it's, it's got some very interesting discussions. Um, verses 1 through 6 is kind of in a different direction than verse 7 through 12 will be. Um, verses 1 through 6, I think, is one of the more interesting passages. Um, and it just takes a good bit of study and thought about it to <clears throat> really delve into what it's saying. I cut grass yesterday, so I'm struggling. <laughs> so, if you remember chapter 3, we began a discussion on the importance of loving one another. And we were given an example of how not to love, which was the example of Cain, who was angry and murdered his brother. And then we were given a great example of love in the person of Christ. Um, John pointed out the importance of loving in deeds. In verse 18, he says, Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. And then he ended chapter 3 with the conviction that our ultimate assurance as Christians depends on and is given by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which we receive at our conversion and which through it we demonstrate the fruits of the Spirit. And we're also told that if, we, if whoever keeps his commandment abides in God and God in him, and that ended uh, chapter 3. In chapter 4, we're going to see John, who we know the setting of this writing as he's writing against false doctrines that are starting to be taught um, against the church that go against Christ. And as he's facing these false teachers, he explains what is to be done with different theologies, um, when different, he uses the term spirits, when different things are being taught and put forth by those who claim the same authority of the Spirit. <clears throat> so the church was not the only one, Christians and the apostles' teaching was not the only ones that, I guess, used the Holy Spirit or referenced the Holy Spirit as being their guide. The false teachers saw opportunity in using and mentioning the Spirit in their teaching. And so many who had divided the churches were, were equally as willing and keen to appeal to the witness of the Spirit in support of their false claims. So what we're going to see is John talking about how to discern spirits here. Some of the spirits are the small S spirits and some of them are the large S spirits. But John's answer to this problem, he begins in verse 1, is with testing the spirits. And then at the end of this section we'll study this morning, he goes on to discuss the nature of God, um, which is defined as the nature of love. So let's begin in verses 1 through 3. We'll read that and then we'll get into the discussion. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. 
So as we begin this, we see him, I think he says it, it's like eight times in here, the term spirit. When he talks about the spirit of God, that's capital S spirit. It's a reference to the Holy Spirit. The others are small s, which can mean a lot of different things. Uh, it can be the nature in which it's taught, the, the spirit, the general spirit in which it's taught. Um, it can be a reference to false teachers who were teaching in the name of the Spirit, but it was not the Holy Spirit they were teaching in the name of. So there's some things to kind of parse out as we go through these verses. And John begins this chapter by giving two criteria for testing the spirits. And the first one we see is given in this, this section of passage. It's examine what they say. So the spirits we see referred to in these verses heavily lean towards the idea of being false teachers, but I also think it's false teachers that are teaching in the name of God, trying to use the Spirit to manipulate people. Um, and so we see it being tied into false teaching and it's been alluded to throughout this letter. Um, in chapter 2 and 18, John said, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. And we were defined in chapter 2, the Antichrist is the one who denies Christ as the Son. Um, that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah. And he says that in chapter 2, verse 22. He said, Who is the liar but he who denies Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, who, he who denies the Father and the Son. That same chapter, verse 26, he says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. And in 4, verse 5, which we'll read here in just a minute, he says, They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens. So these were people who were against Christ. They were teaching against Christian thought, Christian love, Christian practice. They were, they were teaching things that were opposite and against Christ, but they were doing it in the spirit of being presumed to be godly. Um, so the sense of the exhortation here is to refrain from believing every teacher or every teaching who claims to be from God, but to prove them and see whether or not they really are. And this was important, especially at this time, um, because Asia Minor, including Ephesus, was, was just rampant with this thought of magic and mysticism. Um, there was a lot of heresy and error, and there were the advocates of all of these different movements that claim some type of, I guess you'd say, supernatural or miraculous powers and gifts. Um, so it was possible for people to be manipulated. And we see that today. Um, we see a lot of that in some of the New World religions and a lot of the cults that are out there. We see people claiming to be of God. Um, I listened to a podcast, it was a lengthy one, on Jim Jones and his, his cult. And in some of the recordings they play of his speeches that he made, <clears throat> he was talking about how God had directly spoke to him and how God was leading him to do these things. People have used the name of God 
to reference false movements since the beginning of time. And this is what John's warning against, is he's warning these people against people who are teaching in a spirit that is antithetical to God, but is also referencing God as the reason for doing it. Because you just have to give a little bit of credence behind what you're saying, and people will line up and believe you sometimes. Um, So the reason for this exhortation is that many false teachers have gone out into the world And Christ warned of the same thing in Matthew 24 and 11. He says, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Christ knew this was going to be a problem during his earthly ministry. And he's warning the apostles, hey, there are going to be people that are going to come up, that are going to falsely teach, that are going to lead people astray. So John then gives us a gauge for judging if someone is teaching truth or they're teaching lies. If they're speaking in the spirit of God or if they're speaking in another spirit that's, uh, that is uh, against God. And the first thing to look at is if a person confesses that Christ has come in the flesh, he is of God. If a person denies Christ made manifest to us, that person is not of God. So Paul taught a similar lesson to the Corinthians He says, therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. John basically is saying, listen to what these people say, listen to their words, and then question the content of what they say. Does their message encourage God's people to worship and obey God? Does it say that Christ is who Christ said he was, the Son of God, the Deliverer, our source of salvation, the Messiah? Or does it go against that? Does it lead people away from God? Does it discourage them from following God's commandments? Does it discourage them from understanding and believing the true divine nature of Christ? And at the time of this writing, we know that the church, or at least some in the church, had been anointed by the Holy One. We talked about this maybe last week or week before last, that there are still, this is the time still where spiritual gifts were available. The apostles could pass those spiritual gifts. John was still living at the time of this writing, and we were told that there was a a gift of truth where people could hear the word and discern the spirits. And so we're living in a time where there are still people who have that gift and they have knowledge of the truth. And part of the reason there was this group of people there was to help discern these spirits, to divide out those who were teaching falsely. And the reason that was necessary at that time is they did not have the full revealed word of God to turn to. The reason it's not necessary today is because we've got the full revealed word of God to turn to and we can listen to what somebody says and we can open up God's word and we can say, hmm, that goes against what it says right here. You're speaking falsely. Well, that, you didn't have a printed Bible to pick up and look at and compare to. So they had individuals, I think the apostles had this, I think they imparted this gift on some other people that had the ability to discern who was telling the truth, who was speaking in the truth of God. So today we have the Word of God to measure against what the Bible says when people are talking to us, 
And so we should be like the Bereans in Acts 17, 11, that received the word with eagerness, but they examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. If someone is teaching you or telling you something about God, about the word of God, it is your responsibility, it's my responsibility, it's our responsibility to test what we're being told against what is in the Word of God. And that's how we, we, we are able to determine if someone is speaking falsely. John then reinforces the idea of the Antichrist, again defining it as every spirit that does not confess Jesus. And then he says that spirit is not from God. John then reminds them that they heard of its coming and warns them that the Antichrist is already in the world. And like we talked about in chapter 2, this just reinforces the idea that the Antichrist is not this supernatural, powerful being, individual that's going to come into the world and set off these world events that's going to create chaos and lead, lead to um, some of the things that the, I guess the premillennial movement talks about. The Antichrist is anybody who denies that Christ is who he says he was. And John says this person is already here. Um, he's already working against the church. And so he's not anything that is, is coming at the end of time to, to battle against the world and Christianity. That, that, there's some really nice books out there that are kind of fictional that tell that. But that's what they are. They're fiction. They're entertainment. The Antichrist, John again defines for the second time in this letter, is anyone who opposes the, the person of Christ. He then goes into verses 4 through 6, <clears throat> and they read, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God... Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So John now starts to give a second criteria for testing the spirit. He says, examine what they say. But then he, in a broad way, he starts to say, look at how they live. Because belief and behavior are always harnessed together we should not be surprised that John expands the way in which we test false teaching by looking beyond the content of what the words are, but the actual product it produces, the life that it leads to. Um, each of these verses begin with a different pronoun, which I think is, is interesting, introducing a, a group of people. So if you look at verse 4, it says, Little children, you are from God. If you look at verse 2, it says, they are from the world. If you look at verse 3, it says, we are from God. So there's three references. You refers to all Christians. They refers to the non-Christian false prophets. We belongs and refers to the apostles and the teachers of truth. So the first thing he says is that Christians are little children, which we've heard him use this kind of a term of endearment throughout the book, have overcome them. And the word overcome indicates that John's readers had earlier reached a decision regarding the nature of these teachers and had rejected them, that they had stayed true to their conviction that they found in Christ. They had stayed true to their conversion as a Christian. They had overcome the false teachers by refusing to listen to them and by repudiating that which these teachers sought 
to, to, to oppose them on. So the reason that they were able to do this is because he who was in them was greater than he who is in the world. Meaning that God has defeated Satan. If God is on your side, Satan cannot win. Now for God to be on your side, and he's on all our sides, but for God to really actively be working in our life, we have our end of that bargain too, which is we have to be obedient, we have to be following him, we have to be observant of what he teaches. And if we do those things, he, through his word, will guide us and will allow us to overcome what is in, in the world. Um, Paul gives similar assurances when he's describing the everlasting love of God in Romans. Flip to Romans for just a second. We're going to read Romans 8, and it's, it's a little longer than what we would normally pause to read, but it's Romans 8, verses 31 through 39. Listen how similar it is in language. So <clears throat> it's verses 31 through 39 of Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Very similar discussion there. If God is for us, who can be against us? If we have God with us, God is greater than who is in the world, and He gives us strength to stand up to these false teachings. By contrast, false teachers are of the world, and it is a world which chapter 2, verse 17 in this, in this letter tells us is passing away. The world was the origin and the source of what they teach. And John pointed out that the popularity of their teaching, the false teacher's teaching, was due to the fact that it was suited to the desires of the world. For instance, the Gnostics taught that what was done in the flesh could not affect the spirit. Just think in contrast to Christianity how different this was to what Scripture taught. The Gnostics said, whatever you do in the flesh isn't going to affect your spirit, well, that's a pretty big draw if you're worldly. I mean, you're looking for the what's the minimum thing I can do to be saved. Well, according to the Gnostics, is if your spirit's good, you can do anything in the flesh and you're fine. It goes totally against what Scripture teaches, but it is something that's very appealing to the world. And it's still true today. It's a sad commentary on human nature that the masses of people and sometimes ourselves, prefer to listen to falsehoods rather than the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's word. And sometimes that's because we listen to what we want to hear instead of um, 
bending our will to God. We want to put our will forward first. So Paul warned Timothy of this tendency in the church in 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 4. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is, the ju- who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Very, very similar to what John is warning about here is that we, the world has these draws that draws us through our own will, not God's will, but through our own desires to it. And that's what John is teaching against. So we in verse 6, though, is a reference to the apostles and those who taught the truth. Those included in the term we are put in contrast to the false teachers in the verse before. And those who are in tune with the teachings of God hear truthful teaching and listen to it. Um, Those who are not in tune with God do not listen to truthful teaching. Jesus said, whoever is of God hears the word of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Jesus says that in John 8, 47. Knowing God in this verse is a reference to the one who is ever increasing in knowledge of the one and only true God. And such a person who knows God recognizes God's truth when it's preached and hears hears it gladly. So the end of verse 6 gives us a by this statement. By this we will know. And by this is pointing back to what he's just been saying. By this we will know. And he says basically by the attitude people manifest towards the preaching of the truth, it is possible to distinguish those who hold the spirit of truth and those who are influenced by a spirit of error. And the spirit of truth here is not a reference necessarily to the Holy Spirit, but it's a disposition favorable towards the truth. It's the small s spirit where the spirit of error is a disposition friendly to error. So it's, it's the spirit you have within yourself. Do you have a spirit of truth where you're happy to hear the truth or do you have a spirit towards error? And that's what he's contrasting throughout these verses. He then changes, and I don't think by accident, because I think when we start talking about living as God wants us to live and working against false teachers and knowing that we, we listen to what they say and we watch how they live, he then gives us an example of what God is like and what was required of us. So verses 7 and 8, he shifts gear by talking about the love of God, but the love of God is what defines God. If we want to know truth, one of the biggest litmus tests for is someone teaching falsely or is someone of God is the love that they demonstrate in their words and in their actions. So he says in verses 7 and 8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not, who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So in a way, he's continuing this discussion on false teaching and how to discern the spirits between the Spirit of God and the Spirit of the world. And he says, if you really want to know where it comes from, look at love. 
Because love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God, and he who that does not love does not know God. So John addresses his beloved again, another term of endearment that he has used for Christians, um, and he starts to discuss love. So as love is the foundation of all the commandments, um, we know that Mark 12, 29 through 31, which is a is a quote of um, the Old Testament, but Christ says the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. In Mark 12, 29-31, which we just read, it was imperative that the Christians knew that love was the most important part. And John is building on that because he's saying, let us love one another because love finds its, its, its core in God. It finds its definition of God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And the one that does not love does not know God. And he defines God as love. So he reminds the reader that love is from God. It finds its beginnings in him. It proceeds from him. And anyone who loves God must, as a necessary consequence, love his brother. Love is so important to the Christian faith that it is seen as a marker of those who have been born of God. Ruminate on that for just a second. I'll read it again. Love is so important to the Christian faith that it is seen as the marker of those who have been born of God. Love is a sign of new birth. Love is a sign of conversion. Love is a sign of fellowship. John is using love as a sign of true Christianity here. And if one does not show love in his heart for his brothers and love in his heart for God then they're not truly born again. They're not born of God. And that's a frightening thing because there's a lot of us who have put on Christ in baptism being born again, being born of God, but we're lacking that love component in our hearts, our love for our brothers and sisters, our love for our enemies, our love for God, our love for Christ, our love for one another. And what John says here is it, he's, he's not um, beating around the bush at all. What he's saying is anyone who does not love does not know God. And he defines the one that is being born of God as whoever loves and has been born of God and knows God. We have to be careful with love. We, we throw that term around. That term has lost a lot of significance in the world today. I love mac and cheese. That means something totally different than the kind of love that we're talking about in respect to God and our brothers and sisters. And the world is forgetting that. And, and we put ourselves in a dangerous situation when we forget that because love is defined as a sign of new birth. John is using it as a sign of of Christianity. Love is one characteristic of the Christian religion which is difficult to counterfeit. 
Have you ever been caught acting like you love somebody or doing something just superficially so that they think you're a great person? It happens sometimes. It's because it's easy to tell if someone is sincere in their love, sincere in their motives, sincere in their actions. And the love of God is where that sincerity comes from. And, and it can be very easy to, to be seen and to be counterfeited as well. John states that those who do not demonstrate love do not know God. And the reason is because God is love. The character of God is love. The definition of God is love. And if you do not know love, then you do not know God. And the meaning that John intends is this, that one who claims to be a child of God but does not and has not experienced the love which exists between true children of God demonstrates the fact that he, he not only does not know God, but he's never known him and was really never truly converted. Because if we're giving our all to God, then we have to develop love. And it's a process, but it's something we have to work on. Where love is absent, relationship to God becomes distant. It's just the truth. And that's what John is pointing at here. He's saying that one of the markers of your conversion, one of the markers of Christianity, one of your markers of the relationship that you have with God and your brothers and sisters is love. And where that lacks, you need to really start to question your own life. You need to question your dedication. You need to question your conversion to God. Because God is love, and we're commanded to love. God is love. He's the originator of love. He is the essence of love. And if we cannot demonstrate that love in our lives for one another and for God, then we have to start questioning our sincerity towards God. And as we talk about false teaching, this is one of the big markers for false teachers. Do the false teachers demonstrate a love for God? Do they demonstrate a love for their brothers? If they don't, then they're not of God because God is love. And it's a hard thing to think about. And, and by loving one another, I don't mean that we should be walking around hugging each other all the time saying, I love you, so good to see you. No, it loves hard. If you see someone in error and you love them, you correct them. You walk up to them and you say, look, brother, I love you to death, but you're walking in error. Let me help you through this. If you love somebody, you go out of your way to help them when it inconveniences you. If you love somebody, you sit and cry with them when they've lost somebody, or you laugh in just pure joy when they have a great thing in their family. It's not the love that we think of when we define love. It's the same level of love that Christ showed when he came to earth and he died on the cross for our sins. And it's the love that we talked about last week in this class. It's the love that you're willing to lay down your life. And I don't think that necessarily means, in some respects, I think it means that you're willing to die for your brothers. But in another way, I think laying down our life means we're willing to put our desires, our will, our thoughts to the side and put somebody else's ahead of us. And boy, that's a struggle. But that's the kind of love he's talking about here. He goes on in verse 9 and 10, he says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. 
So from verse 9, we learn four things. God's love for man exists. It's real. Number two, it's been made manifest to man. It was made manifest. It was revealed to us in the gift of God's Son. And the purpose of the gift was that we might live through Him. So the love of God was not just seen at the crucifixion, but in the sending of His Son to us. God loved us from the beginning, and He sent His, His Son not because we loved Him, but because He loved us. And that's why John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world. It doesn't say, because the world loved God. It's because God loved the world. When we're unlovable, God loves us. When we're sinful, God loves us. Is He pleased with us? No, but He loves us. How do we know He loves us? Because He sent Christ many, 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 many years ago to die on the cross for our sins, for what we did. And that's the, 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 the type of love that He has for us. The phrase, His only Son, in this passage is the same phrase used in John 3.16 when, when you read His only begotten Son. And it's one of significance. The word translated literally means the only begotten, and it signifies only one of its kind. It's once in a lifetime. It's, it's one of one. There's nothing else like it. And it's used to distinguish Jesus from all other sons of God. If we've put on Christ in baptism and we have become Christians, we're sons of God. Praise the Lord. But our sonship to God is a little different from the sonship of Christ. Because Christ the Son is unique. He's one of a kind. And attention is drawn to the uniqueness of Christ to give further meaning and understanding to the love of God. It being so great that He was willing to send such a Son, such a unique being, one of a kind into the world that we might live through Him. And because life is through Christ, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. We'll read that in a couple of weeks in 1 John 5, 12. John then states in verse 10 that this is love. And this is a reference to the gift of the Son and the love which it rep represents. He reminds us again that it was not manifested because of how we love, but because of how God loved us. Titus 3, 4 through 5 speaks to this in a very similar way. It says, But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Again, it reiterates the goodness and loving kindness of God, and not because of anything we've done, but because of His love and His mercy for us. So as a consequence of God's love, we have a Savior who is the propitiation for our sins, and as a result of God's love for us, we have access to the Father and access to salvation through the Son of God. Why is love so important? Because love is where salvation comes from. Love of God for us caused Him to send His Son. The love of Christ for us caused Christ to go to the cross, to die and to become the propitiation for our sins. And the propitiation means 
He appeased God's wrath that we caused through our sin. It means that he became the punishment, the sacrifice for us. He served in our place where we should have been punished. Christ took on that punishment for us. And he did that through love. And without love, we're not even having a Bible class this morning because God is love. That is the definition of who God is, is love. And through that love, we have access through the Father. Through that love, we have Christ. Through that love, we have salvation. And then he closes this section in verses 11 through 12. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So again, you see in this section on love, now I think this is the second time, maybe the third time I flipped away from it, that John has used a term of endearment. Again, he calls these, this, this audience beloved. Uh, it's the second time in this passage he's used it. In this section, he used it a couple times earlier. But he uses this term of endearment toward the re- reader again, beloved. I don't think John is just writing this out of just God has put it on his heart, the Spirit is guiding him to write it. I think God tr- that John truly loved the brotherhood. And he was writing this out of a position of, I love you, God loves you, let me help you. I think that's his attitude as he's writing this. So the word here directs our intention to the inference based on that which has been written. So he's saying, beloved, if God so loved us, he's saying, I've just defined how much God loves us. And in the view of the fact that God loves us to the extent that he sent his son to die on the cross, then our role is to love one another. Not just to love God, but to love one another. And since God has showed us a selfless, sacrificial love, we should be willing to show this same type of love to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, In 1 John 3, it's verse 16, it says this, By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That's the kind of love that we're supposed to have, selfless, sacrificial love. And the meaning of seeing God in verse 12 is reference to His divine nature. So no one has truly seen the divine nature of God. But we've seen God manifested to us through Christ. And we should see God manifested to one another through our love for one another. Um, uh, It's a sign of Christ dwelling within us that we reveal Christ to one another in our love. Um, God, His nature can only be seen through its manifestations and the revelation which He has made of Himself in, in Christ because no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He, being Christ, has made Him known. That's John 1.18. So how do we know God? We've never seen Him, but we know Him through the love of Christ, and we know Him through the love that we share for one another. So through, through His divine nature, though His divine nature is not seen with the eye, it doesn't mean it's not present. He tells us, John tells us in this chapter, in this, this passage, that He actually abides within us, providing that we love one another 
and His love is perfected in us. So on a condition that we love one another, two things occur. Number one, God abides in us. And two, His love is perfected in us. And if God abides in us and we abide in Him, we have fellowship with God and, the, and Christ. And if we have fellowship with one another and we abide with one another and we all abide with Christ in our heart, then we have fellowship as a collective with God in Christ. So He abides in us he abides in us as we conform to His will and we walk in harmony with His commands. That's the hard part. We all agree. I think I could poll us all and we'd all agree. We know that God is love. And we all agree that we are to love as God has loved us. We all probably also agree that we struggle with that. That we struggle with walking in harmony with His commandments and His word. And thank the Lord for the constant washing of the blood of Christ that we have through access to Christ through the watery grave of baptism. Because the blood of Christ is what cleanses us. So it's a constant battle that we're constantly having to work and we're constantly having to walk in harmony with His commandments. But when we love each other, His love is perfected in us. Meaning His love is made whole, it's made complete in us. Um, we become a representation of the love of God. So love for others is a token of the love which we have for God. And if we love God, His love is in us, and we will in turn love others. This all ties back to the idea that he was talking about earlier and test the spirits. What is the spirit that is being taught? Is what's being taught Christ-centered taught in love, talking about the love of God, talking about the need to love one another? If it is, thumbs up, not a false teacher. If what's being taught, though, goes against the love of God, goes against the love of one another, puts self in the place of God, puts self and our will in the place of God's will, then that spirit is a spirit of false teaching. And that's the hard part, is it's our duty to learn to discern those things. But the more we come in touch with the love of God, the more we come in touch with the Word of God, the more we put His Word in our heart, the easier it is for us to discern, is this person teaching in a spirit of falseness, or is he teaching in the spirit of truth? And that's our duty. We have to be able to discern those things for our own sake, for our children's sake, and for one another's sake. Because we can be led astray. We can fall away. We can turn our backs on God. Now he, like the prodigal son, the father in that story, is going to be standing there longing for us to return to him because he loves us. But we have to make that conscience, active decision to turn back to him. The best thing is to love one another, discern the spirits, stay true to God, stay true to his word, show his love to one another, and put ourselves second, maybe third, maybe fourth behind God and others. And that's how we show the love of Christ, because that's what Christ did. He humbled himself to become a man, to die, to suffer for us. And so that's how we can use love to discern whether we're seeing a spirit of love or a spirit of falseness, a spirit of truth or a spirit of deceit. And that's all I've got this morning. We will go through the last uh, few verses, 13 through 21, next week. 
Um, getting close to the end of 1 John, which means we must be getting close to the end of the quarter. So um, thank you for your attention.